Welcome everyone to M&M Chat, the D&D discussion show where I, your host, Jared Bornigal, interview awesome people in the community to find out how they got into D&D, what they're working on now, and anything else that comes up. Today, I am joined by Brian McLaughlin, the creator of Complete the Quest, a new interactive graphic novel, which is kind of a, a new thing in general. Uh, so, Brian, introduce yourself, if you would, if you've got more to add, and uh, also tell us what an interactive graphic novel is. Thanks, Jared. Um, my, um, I guess uh, the other thing I'd say about myself is I'm also the dungeon mancer of a live stream that's called Magical Marker, where a bunch of us artists do not just playing Dungeons & Dragons, but drawing what happens along the way. Um, I've been playing D&D for a long time and other role-playing games. Uh, but we'll get into that in a, in a hot minute. Um, what an interactive graphic novel or game book or whatever it is, it's basically, uh, it is sort of like those old choose-your-own-adventures or fighting fantasy books you have, except for it's laid out graphically, which I think really is, pun intended, a game-changer, because it really changes your experience playing through one of those multiple paths things, having everything visually laid out before you, and it brings it more into the role-playing game realm for me, because it makes it more about how to make those choices and why you make those choices, instead of just an arbitrary left-right. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think what, what uh, from, from my looking it over, what it added as well was your ability to just put a map in front of the reader and just say, like, hey, you're going to go through this, and... Uh, it started off really simple, but as I looked into it more and, you know, saw later on, you get into these, like, split pathways and pages that are, are broken out into multiple paths and everything, and uh, it was really, really interesting. Oh, thanks. I, I had a lot of fun trying to make all those different paths and trying to make it work. I mean, you start off, you get to pick three of six different characters, and who you pick to go on the adventure sort of makes more paths more likely that you'll take them. But it does encourage you, if you have a creative solution, to just use that instead. So, you know, like, you may find that if I take the fighter characters, I can fight my way past this. Or if I take the sneaky character, I can sneak my way past this. But if you just say, oh, you know what, I think my character, you know, they're supposed to be good at talking, so I'm going to say they're going to talk their way past this. And, like, that's fully okay. And making sure there was always a, what would people would consider an official or safe way through but encouraging people to also look for other ways that go beyond what's in the text. Right. Right. So with the, the time that I spent with it, I didn't see any uh, immediate failure points. Uh, I know like with Choose Your Own Adventure books, which was what I'm familiar with, loved them when I was younger. Uh, I feel like that was like one of the big things was it was just failure point, failure point, failure point. Um, does that, is that happen at all in these or is it more about the, the story that you make along the way? I think the only thing you can get as a failure point is I've got to go back and go another way. And that's, sure. you know, if the choose your own adventures, you would have your fingers in between all the pages. Yep. yep. That was frustrating. But with the, with this, it doesn't feel like cheating because it's right there on the page. So you're like, oh, I guess maybe I shouldn't go into the mushroom cavern. I'm going to try going into the dwarven mine instead. I'm just going to backtrack and have a look at what's over there. And it's literally like just flipping one page or maybe looking on the same page where you need to go to find those things. Uh, I really don't think there is a failure point unless you're just failing to enjoy yourself, in which case I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think anyone would have that issue. 
so yeah, I'd say it was, it was really great. And I just want to know, where did you even get the idea for, for this type of, of book? Um, well, I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons when I was a teenager, and we never used modules really. Like there, we got a, a box set of Greyhawk that had like one page adventures in it. And we played through most of those, but I never sat down with like a proper module and played it. Some of my other friends did when they took their turns to Dungeon Master. So we played through Temple of Elemental Evil and a couple other things. But uh, I decided to get some of the hardback Dungeons and Dragons adventures. And I was reading through those and I'm like, my imagination just started going. And I started thinking, how would I go through this? And how would I, you know, combine these elements in the adventure to the most interesting success points? And I thought that to me is can be more fun than maybe playing these adventures because playing these adventures is going to take me years. Like, right? I'll tell you, like when I started this, it was uh, one of the books I had picked up was Out of the Abyss, and the other one was Curse of Strahd. And I'm okay. just finishing Out of the Abyss with my group uh, this week, so it's like it's taken over two years to finish this. Yeah, we play every other week, not every week, but still, like. You know. That about lines up, because I've played through Out of the Abyss as well, and that was a solid 9 to 12 month campaign, something like that, and we were playing weekly, so yeah, not surprised, it's a long one. And so I was thinking of, you know, if this was something that I did, it would obviously be a comic, because I make comics, that's how I think about things. And I looked at how that would change gameplay, and so I made up like a little sample page, and I drew it out, and I was like, oh, this is actually really fun. I wonder what would happen if I had multiple pages. And I just started, you know, exploring what it meant. And uh, because I've written Choose Your Own Adventure books, and well, not books, but like I'd written books when I was a child, and I had written uh, Choose Your Own comics that were, you know, a couple pages long. Uh, okay. Where it's more like a, a maze with on the page, almost looks like a board game, a multiple path sure. board game. And. I'd really spent a lot of time exploring the mechanics behind these games, that it wasn't too hard for me to figure out what would be the advantage to doing this and, and what would be things I don't want to include. Like, I don't want to do the dice rolling. To me, the dice rolling doesn't add anything to this. You know, if you're doing a contested dice roll against somebody else, and that starts to become something interesting because you've got some skin in the game there. But right. just dice rolling against a book, it's like, well, I'm just going to cheat. Right. And it doesn't become, how do I get past this monster? It becomes, when do I get past this monster? Because if I die, I'm just going to start again and come back to the same fight and roll dice until I beat it. And Exactly. That just seems like, you know, the thing that they're trying to take out of video games these days is like, you know, the amount of time between when you fail and then you get to reiterate and try again. You know, I'm like, there shouldn't be that in our games these days, even if it's a role-playing book. No, that makes sense. Because if, if you ask yourself the question of what would it add to the the enjoyment of this and if the answer is not really much then you know why bother and i think you know using video games as an example it seems like a lot of games fall into two categories of either a game where it's very difficult to fail because it's just not fun to and then games like you know your your souls like games where it is the point of failure and getting better and doing it over and over again so you know, kind of using as that as an example, it's like if, if the book, in this case, the adve interactive adventure doesn't fall into that category of, oh, it's really fun to fail and do it again and again and again, then yeah, why bother? Yeah, it's more like, you know, which way should I go? Uh, this way? Oh, okay. And you get that knowledge and it's not really cheating because it's right there on the page. You can see left right. and right at the same time. 
which is one of those things like when I was playing Choose Your Own Adventure, it would say go left or right. And I'm like, well, can I smell at the doors? Do I have right. an idea of what this spaceship looked like from the outside? Is this taking me towards the engine or is it taking me towards the front of the ship where the, you know, the captain's chair is going to be? And it, it never gave you context for those things. And right. hopefully the visuals give you those things where you're like, I think my character would probably go this way because it looks really spooky and cool and my character's really gothy. Or this one, you know, I want to go this way because I'm going to get to interact with mushroom people, and that seems really cool. <laughs> right. Right. No, that's great. And I thought what was really cool is that early on, uh, you even had like an entire page kind of dedicated to somebody who might be less familiar with role playing. And it's just kind of saying like, hey, let's let's make your character. Let's actually introduce them and and give them a personality and a reason why they might make these decisions. Uh, It it seemed like something that'd be really fun to kind of just sit around with maybe a couple other people. Each person takes a character and, you know, you all make a story together. Yeah, I think we we toyed around with where to put that in the book. I decided that, uh, you know, traditionally in Dungeons & Dragons or other role-playing games, you make your character first, and then right. you go into the adventure. Sometimes you know about what the adventure will be, and sometimes you don't. But I thought that, you know, throwing people in there first was kind of hard. Uh, I said, you know, pick a character that you like based on what they look like and what their powers are, and then once you've been in the game for a bit and you've done a few maps, now it's time to take some time to think about who they are and what they might be trying to get out of this beyond just, you know, the magical gems or whatever it is. Right. Yeah, no, I I love that approach. I actually generally take that with new people as well, where it's like, unless they're super into the idea of building out their character's backstory, it's like, don't even worry about it to start. Just do something that's interesting, let's get into the, the fun of it, and then we can worry about the well, I guess the added on fun later. Yeah, the, some people enjoy doing that backstory, but I thought, you know, this book is for uh, sort of middle grade kids, like, you know, right. uh, 8 to 12 or 9 to 12 or whatever, and some of them probably have never thought that much about character before, you know, like character right. motivations, things like that. Those in English class, like, my kids are around that age, so I know they're not covering that stuff yet, really. And, right. Um, so I really needed to ease them into that idea and give them examples of what they could pick. You know, you could pick something I, I have for each character. This You can pick A, B, mix them together or make up your own thing, which, you know, gives them, again, the freedom without uh, having that blank canvas that can be too scary sometimes. Right. Something I picked up from Lego, where I was like... Oh, yeah. You know, if you, get, uh, if you tell somebody, here are some blocks, build anything you want then, you know, they may not know what to do. Or, like, you know, some Play-Doh or something. But if you say, here is a Batman action figure, and if you push the button on his back, all he does is shoot this, you know, grappling gun, that's all they're going to do with it. But if you have a Lego set, and it's got a Batman in it, then you go, oh, I'm going to use these bricks to build a Batcave, or a Batmobile, or, you know, it gives you enough of a storyline that you can build something out of it that's yours, but it doesn't leave you empty-handed uh, and uninspired. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I love that way of thinking. Um, so, you know, taking things back to when you started with with Dungeons and Dragons or, or TTRPGs in general, um, what what initially got you into the into the tabletop role playing? Uh, my parents bought me the Red Box set because it was recommended to them by a toy shop owner. 
and we tried looking into it and we couldn't make heads or tails of it. We were like, <laughs> me and my brother are probably like six or seven or something. And like, right. it's just impenetrable. Uh, we love the art and we love some of the ideas in there and reading some stuff, but we couldn't get into it. But by then we had already been reading Choose Your Own Adventures and Fighting Fantasy and the spin-offs of those, like the Witch Way and Grail Quest and all those other types of things. So we were into it genre-wise and into it as a, uh, you know, sort of the idea of going on a fantastic adventure. But it wasn't until middle school when we had a friend who actually knew who knew how to play and took us on the adventures and, uh, you know, we did a lot of stupid things at first, of course, because we were like, you know, right. 10 years old and there's a lot of, you know, stealing furniture from an inn and trying to sell it and, you know, just right. weird ways to try and make money and create chaos. <laughs> but that, every middle schooler is chaotic in some way yeah yeah because you know it's a safe place to break rules right and so we played first edition for a little while and then eventually by high school we got into second edition my brother got out of it but i was still playing with that group of friends and we really enjoyed that uh third edition after college and, you know, throughout there, I tried a few other things, like we played a couple of games of Mas uh, Vampire the Masquerade, and uh, there was a, I think we rolled up some Gamma World characters, but we never got the adventure started. I bought the Marvel Super Heroes role-playing game, but the module I got for it was all about being in the danger room with the X-Men. So it was like, everybody except for one character is going to know that this is fake, or sorry, oh, sorry, one character oh. is going to know it's fake because they're administering the danger room and everybody in the danger room is going to think this fight is real. And trying to get some kids to say, okay, you stay in that room and don't eavesdrop on what I'm going to tell this other player was impossible. Every time I tried to run that, everybody was just running into the room and had their ears up against the door and it was just a mess. So we never got to play Marvel superheroes either. And we just sort of stuck with D&D because it was the game that everybody had learned the rules to. So we did, you know, H.P. Lovecraft-inspired stories without playing Call of the Cthulhu. We did oh, okay. Vampire the Masquerade-inspired gothic horror without playing Vampire the Masquerade. So we just sort of put the themes into the game without thinking too much about the mechanics. I didn't really understand how the mechanics would affect that. But we still sure. we had a lot of fun anyways. Right, right. And when the mechanical issues came up, I mean, a lot of times... I think there's, there's, with the internet, there's tons of conversations about it now, but back in the day, you're sitting in a basement with your friends, a rules conversation comes up, you just kind of make a decision and move on and then never think about it again. So, exactly. <laughs> in some ways, it's easier. And then, uh, I guess, uh, around that time in third edition, I did some freelancing for Dragon Magazine. I did uh, some Dragon Mirth cartoons, and I. Uh, wrote and illustrated an article on fantasy her heraldry and uh, snack food monsters for an April Fool's issue. So I sort of got that out of my system working for Dungeons and Dragons and moved on to some other stuff and working on some comics in other places. And uh, when 4th edition came out, I didn't get into it. Uh, my group was still interested in doing uh, 3.5 and we kept playing that and then I learned 5th edition from listening to live streams. Oh, okay. So I was listening to, you know, the Critical Role or uh, Force Grey even. Like, that was how I first discovered Critical Role was through hearing Matt Mercer on that. And, 
you know, listening to Penny Arcade and starting to understand, like, why do I use a, this type of check instead of that type of check? And uh, so once I felt comfortable having listened to that, I made the switch to fifth edition and the group I was playing with was new. Like, they had, I had some kids and I couldn't play. And then when I came back, I'm like, I'm going to play. Who wants to play? Let's do fifth edition. I've learned how it goes. And the new players were like, let's do it. Did you find that 5th edition was easier to teach people? Or, like, for, for people to just grasp in general? Or was it kind of an arbitrary change? I think that it's probably a little bit easier than some of the other versions. Um, but I think it's all pretty dense. You kind of have to yeah. be into wanting to read a bunch of rules. Uh, and, like... Even to make the simplest character, unless I hand you a pre-generated character, which is cool to do, it's fine to do, but the type of person that's going to want to say, like, yeah, I, I want to come and check that out, are usually the people that want to spend an hour, you know, reading through a rule book and looking at all the different choices and thinking about what they could mean. And I think that, you know, if you have that interest, you know, I mean, there are some books that can really turn that against you and make you not want to get into it, but I think, I think... 2nd edition, 3rd edition, 4th, 5th, they all sort of make it a little easier to get into. Things like, when you get into Thacko, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. And they've, they've made all, <laughs> a lot of those, you know, uh, saving throws make more sense. Like, when did you, when was I supposed to use a rod, staff, and wand versus a magic saving throw? I'm like, let's, okay, the spell comes from a wand, so do I, magic, is it magic, is it spells, is it wands? I don't know what to do. But with this, it's like, well, it affects your mind, so it's going to be wisdom. Right. Right. Keeps it simpler from that aspect. Yeah, I think those are some of the main places where I've heard uh, praise of the simplification of 5th edition is in saving throws and really just bounded accuracy in general works out pretty well with the, the D20. Uh, well, obviously, D20, that's been around for quite some time. But with proficiency bonus and things like that, it, it makes things like armor class and all of that much easier to figure out and just center around. And so you you know mentioned how you uh, made comics for you know, Dragon Magazine, all these other places as well. So when did the making comics aspect come up? I mean, was that like, it sounded like something you were doing even from a very young age. I think a lot of comic book creators generally are. Um, but doing that as like a professional thing, how did that come about? Um, well, when I was a kid, I did a lot of like picture book type things. But I always had difficulty doing comics, like doing those sequential drawings. Um, so I thought I was going to be more of an illustrator. And so I went to college for illustration. And all of my friends who were like, you got to check out this artist, were showing me really cool comic artists. And the because I grew up in a time when most of the comics were drawn in a very an anatomically mostly correct, you know, maybe stretched a bit. But, sure. you know, like it wasn't figures or something like that and then they're showing me these you know artists like the guy who does Hellboy Mike Mignola and I'm like oh this guy is drawing like a black shape with a few lines on it or they're showing me like Dave McKean who's like painting and being really scratchy about it and I'm like oh these are really you know there's so many different ways to do this and I had realized that the people who I was going to school with enjoyed you know talking about brush strokes and thinking about uh you know, the way that they apply the paint to the page or the ink to the page. And I was thinking about it as how to tell a story. 
Mm. And I was like, okay. I've got enough down to move on to the next thing. This should get sure. across what I'm trying to say. And that's where my interest really lay. And so those people showing me what comics could be sort of opened my eyes in college. And so I started trying to get a job doing that. What worked out is uh, a Canadian uh, kids magazine called Owl, which is not as uh, wild as Nickelodeon, but not as tame as Highlights. It's like somewhere okay. in between the two of those. <laughs> right. It's wholesome enough that your grandparents are buying it for your for the kids, uh, but not so dry that you know the kids are not wanting to pick it up and flip through it. Right. Um, I mean, no shade on Highlights or, or Nickelodeon. I've, I, I enjoy Nickelodeon and have worked for them as well. They do some great cartooning. Um, but uh, that's just trying to give your readers or, or, or listeners a idea of what it means, because most people aren't familiar with this Canadian kids magazine. No, that was helpful. Thank you. <laughs> um, but they needed somebody to write a two-page comic every month, and it's kind of like middle-grade Archie. So okay. nobody has uh, relationships, but they can have crushes. You know, it's sort of like you know, really like a younger version where they're just getting into hijinks in middle school. Um, but it can get a you know a little bit ridiculous. Like I can have a talking robot show up or something. Uh, sure. But not like an adventure serial where they go to the moon or something. Um, right. So after that. Uh, I got that because of a friend who was working for one of their other magazines um, called Chickadee. Uh, and so they said, yeah, my friend could maybe write it. And I did a tryout and they liked it and I've been working for them ever since. And, uh, I think, yeah, everything sort of came from that as the first thing to give me some confidence to be able to move forward with it. So basically having spent some time getting to know people in the comic industry in Toronto and just hanging out with them and making friends. One of the guys that I made friends with, Steve Manelli, was just, you know, he was another guy who did goofy, silly comics uh, rather than doing the more superhero-y stuff. And so we clicked. And my name got through on the ring, and I, I did some work, and they liked it. So it's, it's who you know, but it's networking. <laughs> yeah. It's finding your group of people who... Uh, you know, like the same stuff you do and can support you in that way. Yeah, that's awesome. Saying the fact that you've been able to make a, a life out of it. I mean, that's just awesome. So probably spent a lot of time on the, the player side. How much DMing have you done? Do you have like a specific home game that you run? Um, yeah, probably when we were kids, we would rotate through who was Dungeon Master in high school. So it was like, I probably dungeon mastered about 40% of the time because there were three of us that would rotate through and I might and then I started picking up more of the lion's share as people started saying yeah I don't want to do this and I started in, and I enjoyed it more and more um, and now I do basically the only time I've been playing lately is through Adventurers League I thought, okay. I just want to give this a shot. I want to go to Adventures League. I want to see what it's all about, get a chance to play. And, you know, I had some fun experiences through there. I enjoyed the sort of Conan aspect to it, where you just are this hero that shows up for one adventure. You go in, you raid the castle, you get the gem, and then you leave. And then you may never see those other people again. Or you might next week, you know, they might be the same people. Or if you show up a few weeks later. Uh, but 
I also started to see that some of the, like there wasn't as much time for those fun character moments. And that's where you know right. I got out of the home game. So it was fun to go and see how people were playing it and have that experience at a convention or something, especially when you do the the ones where everybody is participating with that called the um there's like the one they have like an event where they've got a whole bunch of tables playing the same adventure at the same time, the epics. So they Oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. So they'll do something like we did one that was called Attack on Stardock, and everybody was in outer space, and there was a Mind Flare ship coming to attack. And, you know, each table sent out, uh, you know, some people on a skiff to shoot down as many incoming ships as you could. And then if you defeated enough ships, the big boss ship would, you know, explode. But every table had to ring up as many kills as they could possibly get before that worked. Um, Man, the logistics of that sound wild, but really, really fun to be a part of. Yeah, it was. Uh, so, like, that's the type of thing I was, you know, that there was some community in that, and there was some, uh, you know, epic level things that you felt like you were a part of. And I, that was really fun. Uh, when cons start happening again, I might start going to, you know, participate in some of those. But it's not something I've been able to do on a regular basis. But, yeah, my home game right now, we... For the first time, I did one of the hardbacks, and I did Out of the Abyss, and it was pretty fun. I found that I didn't enjoy not having downtime, that there always felt to be like this uh, constant pressure of things. So I'm looking at maybe doing, if I do another one next, will be like Candle Keep or Ghost of Salt Marsh or something that definitely has those breaks built into it. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the big things that we found as well, was that everybody made these characters with backstory for out of the abyss and none of it mattered because it was there was never a second to even breathe so when uh mild spoilers for the like six or seven year old adventure at this point but when you do get out of the abyss uh our dm decided to let that go for quite some time as we all just basically went back home and, and were able to have some like character moments and such. And that ended up being the highlight of the campaign is when we could all just actually slow down for a little bit. Uh, it's a, an issue I have with a lot of the pre-written modules as a whole. So I feel like they need more written in downtime. Yeah. Yeah. I can, uh, agree to that. Um, I think the other thing I found, uh, frustrating is I love puzzles and riddles and, I didn't really get much, and I haven't found much in the hardbacks that I've read. Like, the puzzles are not super engaging to me. I'm not like, oh, I've got to steal that, or I've got to run that. Right. I'm like, oh, that works, okay. And uh, so I'm often the one who's creating the puzzles and the games to fill in the adventure, like, to add something to it. Like, okay, there's going to be an extra dungeon in here, and it's going to have these puzzles. Um Oh, I, I definitely respect that because I find it so hard to make puzzles and it's even harder to, I think, take puzzles. They're usually very specific to whatever dungeon they're in. So I, I just always find it very tough and have to make them from scratch. And it will take me hours to think of something that I feel like is actually worth putting in front of players. I have a, a PDF that I've got on itch and uh, RPG drive through that's about how to make them. And I'll tell you part of the secret for it is... Um, I spent a lot of time, because a lot of the stuff that I write is uh, jokes. Like, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian, but I didn't want to have to travel. So instead of being a comic, I started making comics. (laughs) 
And so uh, I've studied, like, you know, how do comedians come up with all of this? Like, you know, how do they come up with a monologue every night? You know, like, how do they generate joke ideas? And it's this brainstorming technique. And the, the sort of brainstorming they have to create a joke is very similar to the thing you do to create a riddle. Because a joke is a riddle that lands on the ha-ha side. And a riddle is one that lands on the aha side. Okay, that's really interesting. I've never thought about it like that. So, like you know, so you know, a lot of oh, uh, childhood riddles or jokes are riddles. Like, what do you call a something something, right? And it's sort of a play right. on words or uh, a way of rethinking of something that you thought was one way, and you're like, oh, that's you know, you, um, a good example is, did you hear about the that there were two fish driving it? There were two fish in a tank. Uh, one of them says, uh, you know, I'll man the, gu- uh, the turrets and you man the, and you drive. And it's like the first image you get when you say, like, there are two fish in a tank is you start thinking of the aquarium tank. But then when you hear the word turret, you go, oh, my conception of where they were suddenly changes. And that's kind of what a good riddle or puzzle does is it gives you these objects or it gives you these words and a location. And then you have to, it, once the characters twig into what, lens they should be viewing it through they can see they have that aha moment and i enjoy that like there's a a sort of one of the things that dungeons and dragons doesn't have is by not dealing with that they don't have that team building sort of exercise where they all sit around the table and they're like what are we doing what are we going to do they plan like that i think for like a battle maybe but Mm -hmm. to me that almost is way more boring that when they're sitting around going well i'll cast this and you cast that and i'll go over there and it never works out. They get in the room, and then it's right. like, oh, it's a circular-shaped room. We can't do any of that. Or they're right. not even here in this room. So a lot of that planning ends up being frustrating, whereas the riddles, you know, they sit around, they solve the problem. And like I like having like ones that aren't too hard and like you know maybe seven in a row, just like boom, boom. Oh, what's this one? What's this one? What's this one? Give them a hint. They get it. And then we move through. And then also, like if you have a penalty for that, is like maybe there's like seven statues and they're all going to fight them. And for each riddle you get correct, you don't have to fight one of them. And so that way, okay, fine, you don't have to get all the riddles. That's not a fail state. It is a, we're going to have to do a fight, but it's going to be a little easier now. Sure. And so, like, sure. the, I think a lot about, like, how to integra- integrate puzzles and riddles and stuff into the campaign to make it more fun in the same way that, you know... Uh, I did with the book where I was trying to like figure out how to put in those multiple paths that work for people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of the, the talk I hear about puzzles is people saying that they don't like them and I don't ever feel like that's really what they mean. Most of the time it's, I don't like puzzles that if I fail, then that's just kind of it, you know? And so Framing it that way is fantastic of, of even just, you know, hey, all right, you've got seven to do. Some of them are going to be super easy. Maybe one or two of them are extremely hard. But once you fail or succeed, it's it's not the end of the world. It's definitely not the end of the adventure. And it's easy to keep on going. But see how answering correctly, spending time thinking about it, interacting with each other to brainstorm ideas of what it could be. Uh, you know, it, it feels more rewarding when you can like immediately see that it helped you instead of just purely hurting you for getting it wrong yeah like i think they mean i i haven't seen puzzles done well and if you're buying the hardbacks yeah i I mean i haven't gone through all of them but i can see why they'd say that 
Yeah, yeah. There's some difficulty, I assume, in writing for such a wide array of of people. I mean, when you're writing a hardback, it's it's supposed to be just, you know, accessible. But sometimes when you get to puzzles and such, it's it's pretty hard to to make those for for everyone, basically. Yeah, which you may think like, oh, it's clearly the answer is blue jay. And they're like, in this part of the world, we don't have blue jays. I'm sorry, I don't, you know, if you'd made one about a heron, I would have maybe got it. Right. Um, the the other piece of advice I have for that is the, when I said give them a hint, is I like to, something I twigged into as a DM a while ago, is giving the characters an NPC that doesn't have arms or legs or basically can interact with objects. Like a floating spirit, basically. Yeah, some, I've given like uh, amulets that have you know somebody's soul trapped in it, or like a talking dog, or uh, in the magical marker campaign, there's like a severed hand that's from a spellcaster that's you know looking for the other hand to magic themselves back a body, and that will write stuff out. So it can't really, it can't lift stuff up, it can't push the characters into doing something, but it can give hints, and that's you know my way is like I know as a DM I've been in the situation where I put them in a puzzle. And they were just like doing everything except the thing. They like they say we should look under the 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 carpet for the key. I bet it's under there. And somebody says, uh, "No, let's check the drawers first. And they check the drawers. And say it's not in the drawers. It's under the carpet. They said they want to look under the carpet, but I don't have a character in that room to tell them that. And I'm just like, right. I could like this was before like you know skill checks were a regular sort of thing where I I didn't think like oh I'll just make a, a a perception check or something. I sure. could have done that, but at the time I was just thinking, you know, I really need a voice in this room that's the Dungeon Master's voice that's usually quiet, sort of like an animal familiar, where it's like most of the time we forget that it's there, but suddenly like, you need somebody to go get the key on the other side of that grate, and, you know, you've got your little weasel back. Right. We forgot when it was the number of people to teleport, and you're like, yeah, there's only four of us, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> uh, but that's that's a really great way of putting that, and man, I've myself experienced that too many times it seems like every time i give a puzzle the first solution that players come up with is one correct and two the last thing they do (laughs) yeah (laughs) so i i'm gonna you know steal that having a little little guide to sit on their shoulder and just point them in the right direction when it's taking a little bit too long that seems like a good idea (laughs) One of the characters I suggest is a, a character that's incredibly dumb, and then it's like always agreeing with you for when you have a bad idea. <laughs> so like you're like, oh, we should totally like just go up and fight the dragon. It's like, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, let's go do that. <laughs> it's like, oh wait, if the dog is agreeing with you, the talking dog's agreeing with you, that this is a problem. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely stealing that. Uh, so with your campaign world with your your home game right now well i shouldn't say right now with your home games in the past have you you know had your own specific world or was it just kind of like pulling from you know like reworking modules or having short adventures like do you have a consistent universe i never thought of it as being uh, a consistent world i often had like certain cities and you know built out from there but I never got to the point where I was building something like Taldore, where it was like, you know, this you know, elaborate realm. Um, and that would change from, you know, from time to time, like, you know, from adventure to adventure. 
Yeah, because I find that by the time I finished the campaign, about half of the group had left. And then I'd been oh, replaced okay. by another new group. Like, somebody said, yeah, I've been telling my friend and they want to join. And it's like, sure, no problem. And then somebody else is like, I'm sorry, you know, my job says I've got to come in on Mondays now. I can't play Mondays anymore. And everybody else is like, Monday's the only day we can do. And somebody has to leave. Because, you know, the campaign lasts two years or something, right? Like, there's going to be changes in people's lives. And so having that uh, persistent world hasn't been something that's worked for me because I haven't had a persistent group of players. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Any interest in it when you, I mean, you've been playing, I guess I should ask this, have you been playing Out of the Abyss with the same people or has that been much of the same? Uh, We've had some changeover with that as well. Um, And I have been doing that with Magical Marker and I'm using some of the world building I've got from Complete the Quest in there where I've thought, you know, what I want to see is an underground realm that has insect people in it. You know, give that some more flavor, like the idea that um, it's not drow and duergar and dwarf so much. They live in the mountains, but they don't live under the ground. And sure. uh, that tree people and plant people are more common. And thinking about, you know, who the gods are, you know, that, that's been something I've been putting more thought into for that campaign. Um, because I knew that the people that I'm going to be doing it with are going to be participating in it regularly and sticking with it. And I guess I'm presenting it to the world, so I'm putting more care into it. Sure. Sure. So, I mean, hey, tell me more about Magical Marker. And it's been mentioned a couple of times, but... Um, so it, it's a... There's a Toronto Comic Arts Festival, which is... Uh, a wonderful event in Toronto. It's been it's a free event to go to, and they have lots of great programming. And one year I did Dungeons and Drawings, where I had people come up and draw what happened while the game was going on. They just did it on uh, sheets of chart paper, and uh, we had a great response. Where the room was packed all three times we did it, and I was like, oh, I'm surprised we had such a great response to this. And we looked for a live venue to do it in, and we couldn't find one. And then COVID hit, so we decided let's do it online. Because a couple of the people that had done it, like I had, you know, each of the times I did it, I had different people. But two of them were like, yeah, we're kind of new to Toronto. And if you and I said, you know, you want to join my home game? Let's do it. And so we started playing together. And so they became the people who I was trying to do this with. And we picked up a couple more players. And uh, basically it's a PG-13 adventure of teens and tweens on their first big adventure away from their mentors. Kind of like, uh, you know, kids on bikes with his kids on hikes. You know, there's no... <laughs> right. Um, so we're tr- trying to do something that is, uh, you know, a little more lighthearted. And I found that this group is really interesting because every time they encounter a villain, like, a, a lot of the time they try to talk to it and talk it out of fighting. And so we've had a lot fewer combats. And I think it's the combats have been less interesting and the discussions we've had and the character moments we've had have really been what sort of driven it and made it uh an engaging show that yeah that's great and i think that definitely helps a lot more if you are trying to share things out to the world because you know if if you've ever seen a a live stream that feels like pure numbers it it doesn't have the the same engagement we'll say as as having a gripping story i mean that's just kind of the way it goes uh, so, I mean, that sounds fantastic, and, and I'm sure that you've had some great art come out of that as you're you know, drawing along with it. 
Yeah, and I take the opportunity to pre-draw stuff as the dungeon master because I find it's often hard to be uh, managing all of the NPCs and knowing what reacting to the PCs and draw at the same time. So they end up doing okay. more of the drawing. You know, like when you're waiting for your turn and you're on your phone, maybe you're thinking about what spell you're going to cast. Uh, but you know, instead they're drawing. They're doing the uh, right. what's they're drawing the scene, and uh, so that's good because I feel like it gives the players something to do that keeps them engaged and uh, helps express themselves even when they're having a moment where they're quiet, like we're seeing how they're sulking or how they're relaxing or being scared while this conversation is going on between two other characters. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's fun to be able to pre-draw stuff as the dungeon master. Right? So even though I can't draw in the moment, I'm like, here's what you see. And I drop in a location and a, a creature and they're like, oh, okay. And they don't have to ask a lot of questions about, you know, how far away is it? Or, you know, what color is it? Or they kind of get an idea right away. And then they start asking, you know, more direct, specific, helpful questions. Like, yeah, I saw there was a, you know, this in the background. Can I use that? And I'm, usually I'm like, yeah, let's do it. That's totally. Right. I've actually done that a couple of times where, uh, not in any way professionally, but my uh, fiance draws and there was a couple moments that I was like, I really want everybody to like have a good visualization of this and had her pre-draw out the scene. So it's like reminding me that I've done this before to, to some extent. And yeah, I think immediately people were, were looking at the picture and asking if they could interact in, in very specific ways, stuff that it's, it's hard to get across when you just explain an entire room to a group you know, it's it's hard to put all of that information in at once. Um, or, you know, you just you add more detail when you're drawing than when you're talking because you're trying to turn things back over to the players when you're the dungeon master and not, you know, just give an overly lengthy description. So when you have that picture in front of you, and I'll say if it's an extremely detailed one, great. But even like a, a quick mock-up of the room just lets players really run with what's in front of them. Yeah, and it as the dungeon master, if you're even if you're doing a quick sketch, you're it takes you a minute to makes you force forces you to think about the environment. So yeah. you're like, oh, yeah, this is a castle room. Oh, maybe I'll put a desk here because this person is going to be reading when they come in. So where's the desk go? Oh, it should be by the window because they need the light. Oh, well, I'll put a window here then, and then you know those things might become relevant in the scene where they're like, oh, I want to jump out the window, grab the thing and jump out the window and run away. Right, right. Yeah, the more detail you add, the more chance there is for, for any type of interaction. So that's really cool. And how long have you been, been doing that, uh, It's I, Magical Markers? It's like a year we've been doing it. Uh, we're just coming up on our one-year anniversary of uh, putting episodes out. We did some, we did like about six games where our core group had been just playtesting and seeing, do we get along and can we play together? And you know, we're like, yeah, no, we really like playing together, so... Um, but I think our, like, we're coming up on our first published, like, online one is coming up in a few weeks. Oh, okay. Well, that's exciting. Do you know by chance what day? I got an email from my, uh, other member who's keeping track of this sort of stuff. Our anniversary, one year anniversary will be on August 9th. Are those online right now, or are you saying that they're going to be online soon? Uh, those are online. Like we keep, uh, we do it live on Twitch, and then it goes up okay. on uh, YouTube afterwards. Okay, perfect, perfect. That's that's great. And uh, I assume everybody can find that at 
magical markers or just searching that or or what's the specifics um let me check here <laughs> i know I'm, th- I'm throwing you on the spot here just yeah. i'm sure sure some people will be interested in that and i got some more questions about the the game in general um yeah our channel is called magical marker uh okay. on twitch i i to see what our twitch stream is um Magical Marker, st- our Twitch stream is Magical Marker Stream, because for some reason people have taken Magical Marker. <laughs> if there's a combination of two words, people have probably taken it for a username. So yeah, that just happens. <laughs> uh, perfect. And uh, so, I mean, tell me about the game itself, because you, you've mentioned that it's much more conversational than you might be used to you know everybody tries to kind of avoid fights and combat uh so just what is the the premise of the story so i'm assuming that it's overarching yeah so the the story begins with these uh all of these apprentices that exist in a world where they're gifted so they have the ability to when they lie down to sleep wake up and they're perfectly healed Basically, all these things that in Dungeons and Dragons, you're like, well, that sounds unrealistic. It's like, well, that's yeah. because only certain people in the world get this, and they're called the gifted. And so there is, when they get recognized, often you know a mentor will take these people on as mentees and will teach them the ropes. And some of it is like a wizard learning from another wizard, but it can also be like you know, learning just how to pack a saddlebag or how to sleep lightly. So. I let them pick a mentor that, you know, fit them character-wise. It didn't have to be the same class. And, you know... Sure. And somebody like uh, a rogue who, you know, learns on the street wouldn't have to have, like, an official apprentice. Like, you could be somebody who grew up on the street, but you had somebody who was, you know, an ally to you in some way. Um, So, anyways, these mentors are all getting together for the first time in a long time in the first episode, and they start to hang out and uh, like in the kids room you know like there's the uh, you go to the kids table at thanksgiving or whatever yeah so they're yeah. downstairs in the the rumpus room hanging out and uh basically all hell broke breaks loose and they get teleported away for their own safety and it's them trying to figure out you know what's going on what happened to their mentors and how are they going to survive and how are they going to get along as a group because they're they had never met each other before this um, sure. And so their personalities clashing, and you know, some of them are like, "We've got to go find them right away," and others like, "Ah, that's fine. They're they're our mentors. They're super powerful. They're gonna come find us. We should just stay in one spot." And you know, they're the characters coming up with what they should do and coming to grips with what might have actually happened, um, and trying to make now they're trying to make their way back to you know where they can. They know they have to save their mentors, basically. And how do they right. do that? Uh, being wickedly underpowered. That's that's great. And did everybody know that they're... Like, this was kind of the, the start. When I say everybody, I mean the players, of course. That their mentors were going to be, like, ripped away from them? Or was that kind of kept secret? No, it was kept secret. I said that... Nice. I, <laughs> I said that you weren't be with your mentors. But I didn't say how... Like, I didn't say that they were going to be, like, the main plot thing with it they were gonna have to try and rescue them um that's i mean I, that doesn't have to be the plot they could decide ah screw those guys we don't want to have anything to do with them they failed us sure but 
since they've decided they want to free them, that sort of becomes, I guess that's when our first chapter will end. Um, yeah. And, you know, we're not trying to be, you know, uh, get to level 20 or anything. We're just sure. going to see where it goes and uh, end the chapter when it feels right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I kind of figured as much, at least for that, you know, they didn't know just off the fact that you said that when it happened, they had conflicting thoughts of what to do. I found that when I try and set up a campaign and I'm not like, oh, we're going to have a central theme and everybody get on board that central theme. The first like week is always just the characters interacting and trying to work out a meta reason why they should be adventuring together and why they should, you know, start going here, which some people don't like, but I love that, that time is of just figuring things out. Yeah. It's part of the, you know, the trope of getting a group together for a mission or something. And there has to be, you know, the refusal of the call or whatever, like they're, they're common elements you get in any sort of storytelling. So letting people play that out themselves is sometimes fun. Right. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, I mean, that that seriously sounds really, really cool. So I, I hope that uh, people listening are encouraged to uh, to check that out. So it's a, a neat twist just being able to, to see the events unfold as they happen, or at least relatively shortly after they happen. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a fun thing to do. And like, I feel like uh, the group is really starting to gel. Like we've... Uh, they know how to really take the mickey out of each other and you know even though we didn't all know each other to begin with uh we're all pretty comfortable with each other around the table which is nice to see yeah yeah always need that good uh, group synergy and i would hope after this amount of time you you all have found it i'm sure you have yeah. Uh, great. Well, uh, we're getting to kind of near the the end of our time here. Uh, around this point, I like to turn things over to you and just kind of say, is there there anything that you want to talk about that maybe we haven't covered? I mean, it's it's a very broad question, so take your time and think about it if you'd like. One thing I wanted to say is uh, I have been really enjoying role-playing games so much because they surprise me. And these days when I find a new TV show or movie or something, I am usually not engaged by it. I am preferring to listen to live streams a lot of the time because I want that, you know, roll of a 1 or a 20 that completely changes the way the story is going. Or the character yeah. who just, like, is not going to go away, go along the way the plot wanted them to go along because they came up with a, an interesting, you know, uh, monkey wrench to throw in the works. And uh, I think that's the... I'm really enjoying that this hobby is something that I can watch while I'm working, like while I'm drawing these pictures, because, uh, you know, improvisational stuff is really scratching an itch I need that I'm not getting from pre-scripted television and movies these days. Sure, sure. No, I totally get that. I mean, we're, we're definitely in a bit of a uh, tabletop renaissance as a whole, but especially when it comes to watching other people's games and just it's been really amazing what what people are able to do. But I, I totally understand what you mean with that where, yeah, I watch a, a TV show now and it, it doesn't, they're enjoyable. I enjoy whatever types of media, but they definitely don't hit the same way as just something incredibly spontaneous happening that you just cannot match in any other way. No, no plot twist in a movie is ever going to hit as much because it's still scripted. It was thought of, it was, you know, tweaked over and over for hours, but not tabletop games. Yeah. It's like the difference between seeing a stand-up comedian 
uh, sort of riffing uh, as opposed to like reading, you know, uh, a well orchestrated treatise on humor or something. Like it's right, right. Uh, like just live in person when you know that moment that character that person is just engaging with the audience maybe and is coming up with a way to deal with a heckler. You're gonna probably laugh harder at that than you would laugh at, you know, just a joke on a sitcom. Right, right. But I mean, how am I supposed to know that I'm that I have to laugh if there's no laugh track? <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> so, I learned an interesting fact about the laugh track, uh, and that is, people are really were really secretive about where they recorded it or how they got all that laughter. But the rumor is that it was during a Marcel Marceau show and he's a famous mime and so we're laughing at the laughter of people who are long dead who are watching a oh, mime yeah. so we're like laughing at a mime's ghost's laughter like that's what that oh. is weird okay <laughs> that's not a fun fact that's weird <laughs> no that's that's neat I did not know that uh well hey that's that's fantastic and uh i think you know the one last question that i had is in that vein of uh streams and and whatever else uh what are the the shows that you have been watching that maybe give a, a bit of a shout out to um uh, obviously critical role i mentioned uh i love right. high rollers i think that their blend of uh action and uh goofing around and feels is you know, it's one of my favorite shows. Uh, I really enjoy Rivals of Waterdeep. I enjoy the fact that they keep changing who's DMing. And so, like, mm -hmm. one season you get a, one that's, like, full of riddles and puzzles. And the next season you get one that's all about character. And the next season you get one that's more action-based. And that's a fun one to listen to. And uh, because I love puzzles, Relics and Rarities. The, that was one where they had actual physical objects that people would get and they could use during the sort of adventure. And oh. it was a lot of puzzles that they would physically have to interact with uh, in the thing. They only did, like, I think 10 or 12 episodes of it, but I, they were really good. Yeah, probably because that was, like, a lot of effort to set up, but yeah. <laughs> it sounds really cool. <laughs> uh, well, that's great. Hey, well, uh, Brian, thank you so much for, for coming on. This has been fantastic to, to talk. And, uh, you know, before we go, if you want to let everybody know where they can find you, and I know that, you know, your your book, Complete the Quest, came out like a few days ago, and, and this will air in just a couple of days. So, you know, let people know where to find you and where to find your work. Sure. Uh, I'm Brian McLaughlin. McLaughlin is M-C-L-A-C-H-L-A-N. There's like a million different ways to spell it. <laughs> uh, but it's kind of like Sarah McLaughlin's, I think. I think she spells it the same way. Uh, I think so, not, but I'm not a Sarah McLaughlin expert. Yeah, it's not the Kyle <laughs> McLaughlin way. It's got a laugh in it. It's not that one. Um, <laughs> I'm at McLaughlin Brian on Twitter, and you can search for Complete the Quest, the Poisonous Library, in any of your favorite places you get books. Um, yeah, buy local if you can. If you can't, buy it uh, from the Amazon and help me get a better ranking on the algorithm. It's really, we're all chasing the algorithm. I get it. I get it. <laughs> and I'll make sure to post links. So if you are curious, then uh, yeah, check the descriptions and, and get everything that you need. And uh, 
yeah, I think that's it. So thanks everybody for for listening, and Brian, thanks again for for joining and, and letting me take some of your time. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, Jared. <laughs>